Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. I can honestly say I think I have been influenced by him in in what I do to this day. That was John Dixon, a man of many talents. He was the front man of a band in the 1980s and 90s. He's an ancient historian and theologian having had teaching posts in his native Sydney, Australia, at Macquarie University, and also in the Department of Jewish Studies at the University of Sydney, as well as a visiting role in other establishments around the world, including Oxford University. He's also been a church pastor and leader. And as if that wasn't enough, he was the founder of the Centre for Public Christianity and is a writer and media presenter, currently known for his excellent Underceptions podcast, of which I'm a frequent listener. But my primary reason for getting him onto this podcast is that when asked to describe his own churchmanship, he will sometimes describe himself as a John Stott evangelical. This, amongst other things, was the focus of our conversation. It's um, sort of a stock phrase that I use all over the place. And um, I use it in America a lot because, I mean, he is known there and the word evangelical is, uh, is a very different thing from well, the British evangelical tradition yes. for one thing, and Stott is another thing within that tradition. But sure. somehow, you know, I've been able to get around America and around Asia and so on. Um, when people sort of trying to p- pigeonhole me, I'm happy to say I'm a John Stott evangelical. And mostly people go, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. Only a few times do they go, oh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so it's a nice shorthand for someone who holds the evangelical convictions strongly, uh, but does it with a kind of um, openness and generosity of spirit mm-hmm. that sort of isn't isn't everywhere found in our right. evangelical circles. And I guess also an intellectual integrity that means that you will explore questions and say ambiguities that lie in theology wherever they take you definitely and i mean the thing i when i think of john Stott, i think of someone who is able to hold together things that are so often split apart uh, for convenience and one of them is you know intellectual without losing that pastoral practical basis Uh, but you could add to that Um, someone who is full of conviction and fire, you know, some of his sermons are pretty blistering and yet uh, is full of um, compassion as well. 
someone who was renowned for an evangelistic spirit, seeking to save the lost, and yet was famous, um, some people would say, you know, contentiously so, for his commitment to social justice and, and practical right. issues. So, I mean, these things that are so easily split apart uh, were held together. And I, and I don't think anyone could really um, pigeonhole his politics either. No. Um, he, he, he didn't seem to be left or right. Um, and, and that's something that's increasingly difficult. So for me, it's that ability to hold together things without bifurcating into the usual Christian heresies, because you know that's all Christian heresies are, right? They're just mm. someone deciding to emphasize one part of the tension over the other and stop somehow did it all beautifully, seamlessly. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to the social justice question in a minute, but I, I think that that sums up a lot. I mean, he, he set out to be, well, what was it? BBC, Balanced Biblical Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, and balance is sometimes a dirty word uh, right. for some, you know, because it because it sometimes means um, not full of conviction, but but he he wouldn't, you know, he, you couldn't describe him as lacking in conviction. No. <laughs> um, so, yes, the you know balance is you know for some people um, a bit of a boo word, but 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 in his case, in, in Stott's case, it's a good description of someone yes. who has seen both sides of the coin uh in scripture and pursues them in in the correct proportion so perhaps it's you know he was balanced in that he was it wasn't sort of a, a, a sort of mix or a compromise of sort of you know lowest common denominator or something in the middle it was yeah 100 exactly. percent of one and 100 percent of the other not sort of yes 50 50 it's he wasn't a moderate and, right. and that's what people sometimes think of when they they hear balance yeah. and and he wasn't. He was a passionate, sometimes fiery, mm. uh, laser-sharp preacher yeah. uh, and writer, uh, never compromising, um, and yet uh, just with a with a grace that is fitting. Perhaps we could say um, fiery in quite a sort of buttoned-up 1950s English stiff upper lip way. <laughs> Of course. But I mean, some of the sermons, some of the sermons, uh, I can still hear his voice that, that Buff, mm -hmm. my wife and I used to listen to, mm -hmm. um, must have been, um, I guess, 1990. We, we were addicted to, to the tapes that we could, that we could mm -hmm. um, get from various places. And we'd stick tapes in the car and listen to him endlessly on Ephesians and the pastoral epistles mm -hmm. and so on. And I can hear him not shouting, but British shouting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, raising his voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's an intensity yeah. uh, to his conviction that's just mm. um, delightful. Mm. So, John, did you ever meet him, in fact, or get to know him? Sadly, no. Um, mm. I only have him in tape and book. Mm. Um, my father-in-law, Harry Cotter, um, now passed away, um, did become quite friendly with him, mm. both when Harry was a missionary in Africa uh, with mm. CMS, and then when he was in Singapore with OMF. Uh, he met Stott on several occasions and they corresponded. And uh, so we still have this lovely postcard uh, mm. from, from John Stott to Harry. 
and uh, the lovely little memorabilia being just very friendly. So I feel like I've I've known him, you know, through my parents-in-law, uh, who, who are the who are the same kind of Christian actually uh, as um, as Stott. That same sort of Anglican, classical Anglican evangelical. Um, yeah, so I, I I sort of had my own John Stott in the family in in Harry Cotter. Uh, but that is that's the closest I, I get to the man. Um, you know, I have his books on that shelf. I have another one down there, uh, and uh, you know, these are these are my enduring uh, friends, as it were. And yes. I, I can honestly say, I think I have been influenced by him in in what I do to this day. So unpack that. I mean, you know, you are a scholar. You're an evangelist. You um, you're a podcaster. I mean, that's the, the pinnacle, isn't it? Um, so in what, in what ways, um, has that happened? Do you think? Well, I, I think he was the best example of an expositor I, I ever mm -hmm. heard. Um, and although Sydney evangelicalism is renowned for that expository tra tradition, sometimes in my circles, Exposition can be interrupted by a paradigm you impose on the text mm -hmm. and you, you know, you use its words and you walk through the text and, and that's what we mean by exposition. Just, you know, I went from verse two to three to four to five. Um, but, but often the, the punchline is um, squeezed through a grid, right? right? But Stott didn't do that. Stott was a genuine expositor. He let the text set the, both the meaning and the rhetoric. Uh, yes. of the passage. So yes. whatever was the rhetorical point of the passage would be replicated and he would do it seamlessly. He wouldn't tell you that's what he's doing, but you listen to enough of his sermons and you know, that genuine exposition is the thing that, that stays with me. Now I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a great expositor, um, nor would I say, um, that exposition is my primary form of preaching. Um, my primary form of preaching is getting up in front of people who don't believe and trying to give them thriving and making their questions. That's my bread and butter. Um, but I adore the opportunity just to expound the Epistle of James or the Gospel of Mark or whatever. And when I do, I, I do sort of have John Stott in, in my ear uh, to let the text speak instead of uh, making sure... I, you know, I, I fit the text through a theological grid or even just a tradition grid. Yes. You can hear him saying the perspicuity of scripture or something like that on your shoulder, can't you? Yes. Indeed. <laughs> I wouldn't attempt it in that accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but you're right. I also think, if I'm honest, mate, I, I, I'd also say that um, I, I feel his influence on a number of um, other issues. Um, certainly the... The really careful, you know, kind way of dealing with contentious issues, whether it is, um, right. you know, social justice, boo word there, uh, climate change, uh, homosexuality. Uh, he just had a way of maintaining conviction and compassion in one that I like to think uh, have, have, you know, set me on a course to try and replicate that. And look, his view on women... In ministry, um, I, I have to say, was influential. Um, I used to think this was one of the areas where he was a bit of a heretic, right? Because I used to be quite against uh, women pre preaching. 
uh, let alone being ordained in any way. Uh, and so he was my first person that that I thought I couldn't fault on on much. And yet he had this weird view that was quite open to women doing all sorts of things, including preaching. And I just found that it messed with my head. And so when I came to my own sort of um, textual discoveries about women engaged in ministry, and you know, now I, I, I've journeyed quite a distance from, from my more fundamentalist self, uh, the, the fact that someone of Stott's uh, character and commitment already was there uh, made it feel safer um, because I come from a city it's an Anglican, Sydney Anglican tradition where my view has cost me some friends yes. and yes. lots of opportunities uh, to speak at platforms and so on. And the fact that someone like Stott held roughly the same view uh, is, is a kind of comfort. Yes. I mean, I think that's an illustration, isn't it, of what you were saying earlier about he, he was determined to go where the Bible led him rather than mm. fitting within his grid or framework. Mm. Yes. And I mean, he did that on issues that, that I didn't go with him on, <laughs> um, yeah. but this, but yeah. this, this, the women one, you know, eventually, uh, I really think he was, he was correct to invite women into all sorts of, yeah. uh, ministry, public ministry. I was keen to explore the impact of John Stott's ministry in Australia and on Sydney and New South Wales in particular. Australia was one of the very first overseas ministry trips that Stott made. And it was actually while leading a week of outreach talks at the University of Sydney in 1958 that he received the news of his father's death. For example, I knew that Stott had been a big influence on John Chapman, because I remember Chapo, as he was often known, talking quite a bit about this on his frequent trips to the UK. He was a much-loved evangelist from Sydney, and quite frankly, one of the funniest men I've ever met, as well as a gifted and godly preacher. But that's another story. Chapo describes Stott as highly influential in Sydney Anglicanism. And I was curious to know more about that, because my hunch was that this was less the case today. So I asked John Dixon whether people had been doing expository preaching before Stott came over. Yes, but I think John Stott lifted our game. He spoke, I think, at the Katoomba convention either mm -hmm. the easter convention or one of the big you know one of the big katuma conventions and his mm -hmm. tapes you know were just marvelous i listened to them all but so did a lot of us and mm -hmm. you know he, he was just the best expositor we'd ever heard mm. and we, we had some ones um you know um someone like philip jensen is a, is a good expositor um chapo himself was more more of a kind of evangelistic expositor. Mm -hmm. Anything he could get out of the text to convince a Christian, uh, non-Christian to become a Christian, Chapo would would do, and stand-up comedian, um, <laughs> which John Stott really wasn't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think he lifted all of our game. I think for some of us of a certain generation, um, also found his openness to the world. You know that classic book of his um, issues facing. Christians. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what, what year that was published, but when it was published, and it's gone into so many editions now, maybe you yes, can tell me. But It's a fourth edition now. I think it was about 84, 85, something like that. Yeah. So I, I would have encountered it late 80s, early 90s. Um, it, it, it was uh, a revelation in, in the sense that here is someone normally known for just opening a Bible passage, 
and saying, you know, let's start at verse one. Uh, now writing this book that gathered all the biblical material, but then a pastoral mind and intellect uh, to hot topics. I think that was also influential. Um, some of the, you know, principal leaders in the diocese to this day um, credit him with, with great influence. Um, Mark um, Thompson of Moore College mm. uh, wrote, wrote a lovely um, obituary, I guess you'd call it, a, um, mm. sort of a 1,500-word fif piece re mm. reflection on John Stott uh, when he passed away. That was mm. wonderful, you know? Yes, uh, he I was clear that... that <clears throat> Yeah, he, he was clear that he, you know, didn't agree with everything, but but that was just such a tucked away sort of line. But mostly it was just, you know, a man of incredible godliness, a man of absolute commitment to the gospel, uh, commitment to the scriptures. Uh, and so to see someone that bright, that talented, that kind, with all of those strong evangelical mm. convictions was inspiring in Sydney. Mm. Okay, so why then in that case... Um, is he a controversial figure um, in some circles, particularly on social justice issues, the women's issue you mentioned, something some people always bring up is what he thought about hell? I suspect people really think he was wrong on those things, and, it, and it, yes. it's just a little bit disturbing. Um, so on the women's issue, he was way too open uh, to that. Mm. Uh, there wouldn't, you know, his view is not a majority view here in Sydney. The view that, you know, women could be invited to preach um, is very controversial here. Um, so that uh, does upset. I mean, it's a theological problem for some, but it's also sociological uh, because yes. he's such a, a big name. He lends credibility to a position that could um, cause the crack to, to yes. widen. So there's that sort of nervousness. On the, on the social justice thing, I mean, allied to that social justice question is the value of um, uh, natural work, you know, human work, uh, the workplace. And so uh, we have had a tradition in Sydney of, of downplaying the goodness and, and sacredness of, uh, I, I hate to call it secular work, but you know what I mean? Um, and, and the need to get people out of work into gospel ministry. Um, and Stott sort of was, was not um, pushy and belligerent about the point, but he just so naturally talked about the sacredness of everyday work and of professions that I think that was not uh, acceptable and, um, you know, risked our great push in Sydney to get more people into ministry, more people into more college and so on. That was where the push, you know, sure, it's okay for you to be a doctor, but really if you want to do eternal work, become a gospel minister and stop, stood in the way of that. The, um, he was able to balance evangelism and, and, you know, care for the poor. And again, but from some, and, and I think it is probably a minority for some, uh, that was a threat to uh, evangelism. Uh, it may surprise you, Mark, to know that, um, before you and I knew each other, I was the kind of evangelical who did say every dollar you give to the poor is a dollar less to evangelism. So why would you give something to a temporal ministry when you can give something to an eternal ministry? I, I used to preach that, um, but it was the influence of people like Scott, who I won't say it was all. <laughs> um, and, you know, the influence of Scott, and, but, but also my parents-in-law and my, and my wife, 
who said it was a main point of prayer uh, for her <laughs> that I used to think that. <laughs> um, so she's obviously uh, a very godly, I, righteous woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, the Lord heard her prayer. Uh, I've, I've, I've come around, but uh, you know, not everyone has come around, and no. and some some find that um, disturbing. And his uh, openness to annihilationism uh, is a, a serious mark against his name uh, for some. Um, I myself can't go with him on that on that topic. Um, but but when I you know when I listen to his argument, read his argument, mm. I can see why a smart, biblically minded person can come to that view. Um, and my understanding but, but, is that he never settled. But maybe I've not read all the sort of relevant bits. But I, he was well. There was that to it and... paper he wrote. You know, we I can't remember what it's called now. Um, a dialogue the bit with in a essentials. Lib- liberal. Yeah, the bit in essentials, essentials with David Edwards. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So he marshals the biblical yes. evidence that mm. that says this tips me over the edge mm. to to hold a hope of annihilationism that it, that is at least consistent with scripture is is it's is is where he arrived at it seems to me but but yeah you're right he he said that it's not a dogma for him um but anyway i mean any playing with the notion of final judgment is uh, a bit of a shibboleth or yeah. is it sibboleth um, you know, well, so it it's, it's the wrong, it's the wrong word. Yes. Well, exactly my point. Um, um it's, yeah. uh, it is, it is a shibboleth. His argument is not a framework argument and, and he's very open about, you know, how confronting he finds this, the psychological problem of thinking of everyone being eternally punished consciously. Yes. But then he says, there's no way he's very open about it. No way I hold the view I'm about to explain on the basis of the psychology. For me, it yes. is. In the end, it is uh, about the yeah. argument of scripture, and the, and then he out, you know, he lays out the argument of scripture. So you're left at the end going, okay, he 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 didn't, he just followed what he genuinely thought the scripture was saying on this point. Some evangelicals won't won't read him and won't um, yeah. won't you know speak his name with great honor and won't call themselves John Stott evangelicals. Well, I, I mean, it's interesting. I've in my work with Langham preaching, we try to sort of develop. I suppose you could call them kind of coalitions of different churches, different denominations to work together to develop preaching in a country. Um, and that's usually a unifying force because most people who take the Bible seriously will then take preaching seriously. So they kind of self-select, um, putting all the differences aside. But I can remember one place that shall remain nameless where, you know, we were just beginning putting out feelers in that country to get things started and join people together first two questions uh did john stop believe in hell will you have women at your conference <laughs> and basically our um th- th- that was the end basically those two questions and then it was the end of the conversation and we still not really got anything going in that country yeah that is that is sad uh, that's is how sad. these shibboleths work Instead of a book review this time, we thought it might be good to point you in the direction of some online resources where you can actually hear John Stott in action. Sadly, there's precious little video material of John doing what he did best, especially when younger, so it's hard to get a sense of him in his prime. But there are countless audio recordings, and many, if not most, are available for free. So to start with, 
check out the centenary site which Langham USA have put up, uh, www.johnstott.org. Click on sermons on the menu and it'll take you to a number of talks, I think mainly given in the US, given at things like the Urbana Missions Conference and Duke University, for example. But the biggest treasure trove must surely be the All Souls Church Archive in London. So go to www.allsouls.org and on the homepage click on Sermon Library. You'll find a drop-down list of all the speakers who have been recorded there. And so click on John Stott and once you do that you'll find around 600 recordings, some dating back to the 1970s and even though they're undated I'm pretty sure some are from the 60s too. I can remember when I was on staff at All Souls working on one of Paul's New Testament letters, I think it was Galatians, and I was doing some reading in Uncle John's Bible Speaks Today commentary, and then I went on to the church website and listened to an overview of the letter. But what blew me away was that once I started listening, I noticed that there was barely any difference from the book's introduction as given in the Bible Speaks Today commentary. Now that wouldn't be odd except for the fact that it was given a year or two before the book came out. In other words, unlike most people, the majority of people, John had done nearly all the hard work and study before giving the talks. Most, I think, would probably cut corners uh, giving the talks, but actually been on their best behaviour and given everything they got for something that was going out far wider in published form. But that wasn't John. He was doing the hard work from the beginning in the details of giving each talk. You talked about how at the beginning, you know, he held all these things in balance and there was, there was integrity there. I think, as you will well know, and you've been sort of closely affected yourself, some of the recent um, exposés of leaders um, and people who one thought were one type of person and actually the curtain gets pulled back. It's not the Wizard of Oz, it's something much worse. Yes. Um, and we've got that in this country, in the UK. Uh, there's some awful things in the US as well. I mm. haven't heard so much in Oz, but I guess there are probably stories waiting to come out or whatever, I don't know. But the point yes. is, I think, are we now more acutely sensitive to issues of leadership and leadership style, do you think, than perhaps 30, 40 years ago? Uh, we are probably because of the excesses uh, of mm. recent of recent times. So one thing that seems to be new in the last 10 to 20 years, probably 20 years, is celebrity culture uh, mm -hmm. that, that the church has bought into. And so, Do you see that in Australia are, as well as elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, there is still the myth of the egalitarian Australian that that keeps it somewhat at bay. But yes, we do have the same problem. I, I think there are some cultural reasons why it might be worse in America than in Britain or Australia. Um, because America, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit is at the heart of America and it's at the heart of the celebrity, the person who can just, yes. through a skill become immensely successful. And so yes. America is does seem to be open to these stellar preachers with unbelievable gifts of oratory who uh, and are swashbuckling and they can lead mega churches or they can lead great 
evangelistic ministries and we applaud them and we revere them and we protect them and we won't allow any criticism like of them. them and we want to be like them and we play the celebrity game and and you're right i mean you're probably alluding to the ravi zacharias scandals mm -hmm. and i you know i've known ravi for 25 years and i i was absolutely blindsided and mm. shocked and i don't know how to cope with what's come out um but i can look back and and, and observe that there was a celebrity culture around him yes. Yes. um and I, I thought he personally was humble and pure and, you know, my interactions with him were certainly that. And when he once offered me a job, which I turned down, he said the two things I ask of the people who work for me are sexual purity and humility. And now, now that, that causes a shiver down my spine. But at the time yeah, I thought, wow. oh, good. It's good that he demands that, you know. Um, but there was still a celebrity culture around him, whether or not he uh, fostered it. And, and I think that was really, in the end, terrible. It meant mm. that we were slow to believe. Is that a kind of sycophancy we and yeah. not standing yeah. up to him? Yes, yes. Thinking thinking, there's no way anything could be true of, of, of him. Right. It's, um, it's speaking to him with deference. It's always yep. honoring him, giving him best seats. Uh, he would he would come into conferences where I was one of the speakers at a, at a Nazim conference, and he would only come, you know, into the building itself when it was his turn to speak, with with people right. with his minders, and then after he speaks, he'd be he'd be led out so that no one would be able right. to interact with him. Um, and at the time, I, I thought, oh well, you know, he sort of has to be like that because people are going to mob him. And yes. they've got to they've got to give him rest, and he's got a bad back. Yeah, yeah. And I found all sorts of ways myself yeah. of being caught up in that celebrity. And and I guess the the point of having this conversation, Mark, is that you look at someone like John Stott, and there is no way mm -hmm. he allowed celebrity uh, around yeah. him. Yeah. And boy, do we need that back? Yeah, I mean, he would have been the first to say, "Hey, look, I'm no saint." In the sort of caricature sense but i think as you say the thing that without sort of hero worshiping he was just prepared um to to take a back seat or to be um not fated and you know there was that great line of his i think because particularly in the states i've noticed if you're speaking you'll get a sort of five minute eulogy biography before you speak and how you are just the most incredible thing on earth to be walking on two legs um and it's it's, it's embarrassing well i as a brit i find that very embarrassing um mm. um and you know i just want to, oh, no 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 well of course sucking it up um but um, he he was I, saying, I only get i only get elevated to be a full professor whenever i'm in america well, right. <laughs> I've had three already it's amazing um <laughs> But, but John had this great line. He used to say, um, um, flattery is like cigarettes, smoking cigarettes. They're fine as long as you don't inhale. <laughs> yes. But, um, but I mean, and... he, there was a simplicity, like those, you know, the people that I've known that, that knew him, uh, and obviously you're far closer in that circle, just testified that he lived a very simple lifestyle. Yeah and was 
was into moderation in all things, in, in eating, in clothing, in housing, in travel. Um, and these are the things that aren't true of celebrity preachers, even good evangelical celebrity preachers are flying first class, staying in five-star yeah. hotels, eating sumptuous meals. Yep. And I don't know, this, it's, it's yep. this whole thing, this, you know, last year has really you know, kind of rocked me and uh, caused me yeah. to rethink, you know, the dangers of celebrity culture. And I think someone like John Stott is just a wonderful um, foil to that. I, I couldn't agree more. And the things that we've had in the UK that are ongoing, I've been quite close to as well. And it's just, it's been brutal. And so you do, it does make you think, um, uh, you know, or struggle with the disconnects. Um, mm. I'm trying to find ways of holding things. So I think I would agree that actually it's driven me more to reflect on some of the things he wrote and said, and particularly his little book, Calling Christian Leaders, which I've come back to recently, just expositions from the early chapters of First Corinthians. Um, you know, if only people had been listening to that 30, yeah. 40 years ago. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay, well, we must wrap up um, things. I know you've got um, pressures and time to, to get on mm -hmm. with other things, but how, how would you sum up John's influence on you um, as, a, as a, a believer, let alone someone in ministry, um, if you can. He's the kind of Christian I want to be. Okay. Uh, you know, um, for all the reasons that I've, that I've, dis mm -hmm. that I've discussed, um, I want to be that kind of classical, convictional, generous evangelical. That is a perfect place to end. Um, John, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been a joy to chat. For the prayer point, I think in the light of the things we've been discussing, it's only appropriate that we pray for our leaders, both the leaders of the communities we're part of, but also within Langham, the overall uh, directors and leaders of the different programs that uh, we operate. So please do pray particularly for Tayo Arakawe, the new International Director for Langham, Chris Wright, the Ambassador uh, for Langham Partnership Globally, having stepped back from his previous role. And then the three Programme Directors, Paul Windsor for Langham Preaching, Riyad Cassis for Langham Scholars, and Peter Quant for Langham Literature. All of us, in whatever roles, need the grace of God to keep us on the straight and narrow, to keep us humble, to keep us dependent on God, in many ways to keep us following in the footsteps of the one who started Langham in the first place. So please do pray as we seek to follow John as he followed our Lord. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marseille, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash 
podcast. Until next time, goodbye.